0: I can't believe that InstaWalk tours were a thing. Like Facebook employees were led around campus to use Instagram and take pictures of things after the acquisition to learn how to use it. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 3 of Acquired, the podcast about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert.
1: I'm David Rosenthal.
0: And we are your hosts. On our second episode ever, way back in 2015, we covered Facebook's acquisition of Instagram. And in fact, it's the canonical example of an a that we use on our show. So today we'll dive into the integration itself, how Facebook spent a billion dollars to take something from zero revenue to an app responsible for almost a quarter of all of their revenue today and we are That's super <laughs> yeah right we are super lucky to be joined by the one and only Emily White who played an important role in making this all happen So who is Emily? So Emily today is a venture investor and the president of Anthos Capital in Los Angeles. But previously in her career was a longtime executive at Google where she joined very early, pre-IPO. She worked with Sheryl Sandberg for 10 years and she then continued to work for Sheryl by moving to Facebook in 2010. And then, the topic of today's episode, joined Instagram post-acquisition as their first business executive. She was tasked with building out the business model which spoiler she did a pretty good job and then became COO of Snap before transitioning full time over to what David wrote in the notes as the dark side <laughs> of investing and now sits on the boards of Lululemon, Greco, Honey, Hyperloop One and the X Prize. Welcome Emily and thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, you bet. So Emily, I think there's a good chance that you are the only person in the world who has worked at Google, Facebook, Instagram and Snap. Do you know if that's
2: true? I think it, I think that's true. <laughs> at least I, when I left Snap, that was true. Well, I can't think of anyone else who's done all of those. I brought a couple of folks from Facebook with me, but yeah, <laughs> I know
1: it's a pretty exclusive Venn diagram. There. <laughs>
2: <laughs> if I'm good at one thing, it's it's seeing around corners. Early, yeah, but
0: we'll definitely get into that in the show. I think it's it's been pretty uh, pretty apparent from your journey. So listeners, you know that a few months ago, we started our limited partner program for folks that want to go deeper on technology, startups, and other VC topics with us. So for LPs, uh, we will have an additional segment with Emily after this episode, where we'll cover what Emily and Anthos are looking for in their investments, what it was like to work with Sheryl Sandberg, and her experience serving on public company boards. And if you would like to become a prestigious acquired limited partner, you can do so by clicking the link in the show notes or going to Kimberlight.fm Acquired. So lastly, before we dive in, I want to thank the sponsors of all of season four, Perkins Coie, counsel to great companies. Today, we have a conversation that I had earlier this week with Brian Eiding, a partner representing private and public companies with a technology focus. All right, Brian. I'm going to ask you about something that I'm sure people have heard, uh, especially the founders in the group, uh, quite a bit. And and there might be some uh, nebulousness around what these terms mean and sort of what standard. Can you explain what single trigger acceleration is versus double trigger acceleration?
3: Sure. Single trigger acceleration typically refers to the acceleration of the vesting of equity interests in a company upon a change of control of the company. The double-trigger acceleration refers to two triggers for the acceleration of vesting. First, a sale of the company, and second, a termination of the employee without cause or departure for good reason.
0: And when you're uh, sort of seeing standard docs out there in an initial financing round, which of these is more standard with with maybe
3: founders of a company? Single-trigger acceleration is more rare. Double-trigger is more common. Founders will certainly push for single-trigger, but buyers when it comes time for a transaction like to have built-in incentives for founders and key employees to stick around after the closing.
0: So is it fair to say then that it's advantageous for the company for it to be a double trigger
3: acceleration because it makes it more attractive to buyers? It really is a balancing of interests and each case will be different. A company will be looking to maximize purchase price at the time of exit but also to retain key employees and founders. Founders and key employees will be looking to maximize their economics at the time of exit and purchasers will be looking for flexibility in connection with the deal awesome thanks really appreciate it you bet
0: if you want to learn more about perkins cooey or reach out to brian specifically you can click the link in the show notes or in slack all right david it is time to do what you do best take (laughs) us in set the scene what was happening in the world and uh how did this deal go down
1: well it's so funny you know of course we re-listened to um episode two of acquired in preparation for today which is a little rough (laughs) it's a little (laughs) rough and we realized there was one glaring thing missing from it which was no history and facts (laughs) today we're going to do a a brief history and facts and and then we're going to get to um the meat of of today's episode which is talking with emily about building the business model at instagram but to start quickly and make up for the lack of this in episode two Um, We're going to go back to a very specific time and very specific place in history, which is Friday, April 6th, 2012 at Mark Zuckerberg's house in Menlo Park. Actually, it's in Palo Alto, California. I remember driving by it many times. Facebook is one month away from its IPO roadshow. Uh, Its legendary IPO process is about to kick off. They're planning to raise $10 billion in one of the largest IPOs ever. Hoping for about a hundred billion dollar valuation. Um, the company is a buzz, everyone is working like crazy, and it's actually it is Friday, April 6th, it is Good Friday. Easter is on Sunday. But I suspect Emily can correct us, uh, tell us if this is true or not. Everybody's probably ready to work through the weekend anyway, because I imagine this is a pretty intense time at the company, right?
2: Yeah, I would say so.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Despite the holiday. Something changes that day, though, uh, which is Mark gets a piece of news that would indeed change the course of history and change the course of his weekend. He found out that Instagram, the hot new mobile photo sharing app, which had been on his radar screen for a few months, um, on the company's radar screen, and had just launched on Android the previous week, adding a million users uh, in uh, I don't know if it was the day or the week. Um, I don't know. Pretty quickly.
0: It's still mind blowing to me that this all sort of happened right around the same time. The, I know the, the Android launch, the, the acquisition, the funding round.
1: So Mark and and Facebook find out that Instagram has an acquisition offer on the table from Twitter. I knew this, but I had completely forgotten this. I think many people forget about this. Yeah,
0: I, I actually it was funny. I was I was reading through your notes and I was listening to uh, episode two this morning and just thinking about like, oh my god, that almost happened. Yeah, like, what a different world we would live it almost in today. Happened.
2: Absolutely. So obviously, I was at Facebook at the time, so I didn't have insight into this. But hearing about it after the fact, I don't know. I think good things happen often really quickly, and yeah. um, it all came together for them so fast in an unexpected way.
1: Yeah. So. Instagram, the company, had literally that week closed their Series B, raised $50 million from Sequoia, and uh, acquisition offer on the table from Twitter for $525 million. Now, this must have been a particularly... Salient piece of news for, for Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, because a few years earlier, also another thing that is, is public knowledge, but most people don't know, Mark had offered to buy Twitter for just about 500 million um, a few years earlier. And now here is his oh, former, thing I about. former yeah. acquisition target that is about to buy his current you know potential future competitor. And he's determined that history is not going to repeat itself here. So he does the only thing he can think, which is he calls Kevin Systrom, CEO of, of Instagram, invites him down to his house in Palo Alto and makes him uh, an offer uh, one would say that he can't refuse a billion dollars, 300 million in cash and 700 million in Facebook stock, which um you know, as as we all know, and yeah, covered I'll, in the Facebook, the Facebook stock. Yeah, covered in the Facebook <laughs> IPO episode, um, looked like a bad deal about, you know, six months later, but ended up being a great deal <laughs> and worth a lot more than a billion dollars in the long run, in many ways because of Instagram. So Kevin receives this offer at, at Mark's house. He had driven down. Uh, Instagram's office was in South Park in San Francisco, which also had been the birthplace of Twitter, famously. Uh, Jack Dorsey came up with, uh, as legend has it, uh, the idea for Twitter in South Park in San Francisco. Um, today it is Sand Hill Road North. All the VC firms uh, that used to be in Menlo Park now have their offices in South Park in San Francisco. But Kevin had driven down. He calls his co-founder, Mike Krieger, who's back up in the office, and says hey um I need you to meet me down here can you take the <laughs> Caltrain so South Park is right next to the Caltrain station in San Francisco can you take the Caltrain down to Palo Alto let's meet here and uh, and we'll drive back up to the city I've
0: got some news we
1: got to discuss.
0: So he had left Zuck's house at this point. It wasn't like, I'm going to hang here at Zuck's house for an hour.
1: Apparently, or yeah, he was sitting on the bench at the Caltrain station in Palo Alto, huh. uh, you know, contemplating <laughs> his life and future. And um, Mike shows up on the train. They drive back up to San Francisco. And by the end of the drive, as legend has it, they've decided to take the offer. So that sets in motion a chain of events. Well, really sets in motion a chain of legal firms <laughs> uh, that work like mad throughout the weekend, uh, throughout the holiday. And on Monday... April 9th, the world changes, bombshell announcement. And, and I said this on, on episode two, I'll say it again, I remember the exact moment when I heard this news because um, this was, I mean, now it seems quaint, almost a billion dollar acquisition, but like this didn't happen back then. This was the first, you know, the term unicorn didn't exist.
0: Um, yeah, this did, was a d- huge moment. Did this coin it? What created the phrase unicorn?
2: No, actually, I think that was Aileen yeah, from Cowboy was. Ventures who had done a, piece for, what was it, TechCrunch or something? It was TechCrunch. It was yeah. the next summer. Um, and she had come up with the term. Yeah.
1: Um, but, but but at this moment in time, um, you know, this was a huge valuation for a photo sharing app with no business model, no <laughs> revenue, uh, just bleeding money and server costs, you know, and people really thought, you know, and this was heading right into the IPO roadshow. People thought, you know, this is an example of a crazy young founder out of his mind with too much control of his company. Like, how could you make such a rash decision in a weekend? It um, turns out that the haters were wrong. <laughs> Today, you know, we basically all know what happened since then. In Last year, in 2018, uh, Facebook does not disclose uh, Instagram revenue broken out separately. However, analysts estimate that the Instagram itself did about 8 to $9 billion in revenue. It is predicted to grow by another almost 50% this year to $14 billion, and that would be almost a quarter of all of Facebook's Revenue, so I think they're pretty good ROI on <laughs> that uh, on that acquisition. Um, but that's what we're here to talk about with Emily, which is how did you know this company, which was famously 13 people, no business model, no revenue, um, this product when uh, um, when Facebook bought it? Uh, how did you and the team build what would become 14 billion dollars of revenue today?
2: Yeah. So I remember that Monday too. (laughs) Um, Did you know about it over the weekend? No, no, no (laughs) one knew about it. I don't, I'm not even sure the board knew about it. (laughs) It moved really quickly. And I think, um, internally we had a moment of, wow, this is incredibly cool that our founder has the ability to spot things like this and move so quickly to put them together. Because you have to be incredibly aggressive in a situation like this. And you also have to have the ability to... He has obviously an incredible sense of of what works Mm -hmm. and what's new. And Instagram had been sort of on the radar, but in a really small way. And so the, I mean, I think it was, I wanna say it was like 13 or 16 people at the time. It was Mm -hmm. tiny. It was something that some people at Facebook, some of the Facebook employee population used, but not a ton. But Mark got it immediately and acted really aggressive to make it happen. And uh, of course the challenge is once these things are announced internally, you've got to sit and twiddle your thumbs for months as they're undergoing Mm reviews. So the reality is that we actually didn't even really incorporate Instagram into our day-to-day until, I want to say it was much, much, much later that year. And, And did
0: people at the company in that time after you had announced the acquisition but before you could start doing any integration work, did people start using it? Did people believe? How did people start to believe that, you know, Instagram was, was uh, you know, something that, you know, they should really believe in as a Facebook community? I
2: don't think it was on the radar in that way at all. I huh. think it was, wow, that was really cool that we just did this, now back to work. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs>
0: you have a
1: road to be honest, to I for. think
2: everyone just put their heads back down and kept working, right? We had a, just a ton right. of thing, answers that we didn't have, and there was in some ways sort of no use in even preparing for it, because we didn't know what it was going to look like. It was going to take a while anyway, so...
1: So you were running mobile partnerships at Facebook mm-hmm. at the time, right? Like, had Instagram been on your radar screen? Like,
2: You know, I, I had heard about it, but honestly, I wasn't even using it at the time. Um, and I left, what was it, in late August to have a baby. And Instagram uh, had still not sort not, of closed. Come, not closed at that point. Hmm. But I came back handful of months later, and they had just arrived. Mm. It was really the first acquisition that Facebook had done, not just for the people, which are typically called acquihires, right? Right. But an acquisition for the people and the company, the Mm -hmm. underlying product. And while Mark knew that, I'm not sure that many other people really knew this. And because of our lack of experience in this world, they had sort of moved those 13 or 16 people into a corner of one of the buildings. I think they had thrown some engineers over the wall. Um, (laughs) But I got involved because they moved the team down to
0: Menlo
1: Park, right? They moved
2: the team to Menlo Park, which, of course, they weren't totally excited
0: about. (laughs) Did did they, like, negotiate for, hey, we need to be separate in some capacity? Or do, do you remember, like... How did it work? Kind of going back and forth on well, we need to be separate and be our own team versus we want to be, you know, a part of the Facebook family in some way. Yeah,
2: you know, I have to tell you, my sense of the things, and and the, I wasn't on the inside when I was on maternity leave, listening yeah, yeah, to the yeah. level of conversation. My sense is that no one really knew. We knew that they had to come down, and they would they would be leveraging what Facebook built, but beyond that, it was pretty unclear. Mm-hmm. So so I got involved when I had come back from maternity leave. And um, I think it was Dan Rose who has just left the company said, listen, you know, we've acquired Instagram, they're sitting over in this corner, and they're having some challenges on the business side, <laughs> you should go spend some time with Kevin and see, you know, there's there's maybe some opportunity to help him. What had just happened, I think before, like maybe the week before, was that Facebook lawyers had gotten a hold of the terms of service that Instagram had oh, right. and rewritten it. I was gonna
1: ask about this. <laughs>
2: and um, they rewrote it with a very Facebook frame of mind, which was we want the ability to use this user-generated content in future ads, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, future ad content. And of course, the they community did that with, with, revolted
1: <laughs> exactly
2: i mean that was such a facebook way to approach the yeah. the situation and instagram users were not having it and they they really did revolt in a pretty beautiful way um and made their made themselves known and i think for us and for me being very arms distance at the time it was a realization that like this is actually a very different company with a different me- user mm. mentality and this we really need to understand it and Understanding it does not mean taking the Facebook playbook and throwing it at them. Under, understanding it means getting inside there, understanding the spirit of the company, what makes it so special. And it was sort of through that process that I, went, I underwent and I think the team underwent at the same time. We really understood what Instagram's voice were, was and the importance of maintaining a separate identity.
1: And mm. we'll, we're going to dive much deeper into that, but I, I, we have to ask bef- before then. Back on the Facebook side, you know, when all this went down, mobile and Facebook were like... uh, (laughs) I mean, you must have had a really interesting vantage point running mobile partnerships, but these were the HTML five days, right? Like, (laughs) mobile was... um, not native to Facebook, let's put it that way. I mean, this must have been uh, a culture clash. (laughs)
2: Yeah, I had gone over to work on the mobile efforts in 2011, and I think we had one iOS engineer at the time.
1: One iOS engineer in all of Facebook. it was
2: bad. (laughs) Um, Four
0: years after the iPhone had come out. (laughs)
2: Isn't that amazing? Wait, Uh, um, yeah the web had done so well. (laughs) And I think everyone saw it coming. But when you have a company that's, I mean, even that size of Facebook, that I'm with thousands and thousands of people, there's a DNA change that has to go on. Even to make a platform change that now seems so simple and so obvious, you know, it really meant that you know, Mark had to start every product conversation, product review with show me mobile first, mm-hmm. right? I don't want to see your web anymore. I don't want to mm-hmm. see desktop. I want to see mobile. So changes like that are things that we really had to had to do every day in every opportunity to make sure that mobile became part of everyone's job, not just not just a sort of small select team. I mean, right.
1: It makes sense. Like Facebook was built at that point to, you know, the hottest company on the planet – Uh, in a prior generation it's totally understandable why like the company and everyone focused on that product you know other than mark at that vantage point would be thinking like what is this mobile you know we're the big
0: gorilla here yeah i'm curious emily a lot of times in acquisitions like this the There's value destruction that happens because the team at the big company that is doing something most similar to the startup they acquired is allergic to it, even though, you know, upper management believes that acquiring the startup was the right idea. And so they like do everything they can to kill it. Was there any clash with the photos team uh, who sort of looked at Instagram and thought it was competitive or thought it was, you know, the wrong strategy or anything like that?
2: You know, oddly, no. I never I never witnessed or heard anything like that. I did, and I think I told you guys this as we were prepping, as I was getting to know Kevin and sort of falling more and more in love with the product and his brain and and his vision for it and he and I had started talking about me coming over and joining him. I talked to some friends at Facebook and I got reactions like why would you do that? That's like joining Facebook photos. Or I was told several times that I shouldn't take the job because it was too small for me. Wow. <laughs> that actually resulted in me, I think I I think I told Kevin twice or three times no. I just was like wow. no, I you know, I think I need to continue to focus on mobile. I'm being told that it's the place I need to spend my energy. And I remember driving home one evening, Oprah had just come actually to Facebook and talked to our our, our um, employee base, and she had ended the conversation <laughs> of course. with an am- of course. <laughs> amazing piece of advice that really sat with me that night, especially on the drive home. She said, listen to your whispers, because if you don't listen to your whispers, they become screams. Mm. And... Um, mm. I was like, what am I doing? All I want to do is go work on Instagram. And we're about to piss away not only a billion dollars and an amazing team, but really the opportunity to disrupt ourselves. And it's a really big struggle. I mean, in disruptive companies to maintain that DNA when you're large and have the ability to say, you know what, there's going to be another generation that is going to sort of Take over what we've built, and we want to create the playground to have that that disruptor be in our in our home with us is pretty mature, and uh, yeah. I'm not sure. Again, everyone got it, um, and so uh, for me, it was a pretty big aha moment, and the, and yeah. what drove me back in the next day to. Or the next week, so did I should you, say.
1: You called Kevin at that point, or probably went across the wall to see him, and
2: um, you know, I. So this was a Friday night. I think on on Monday I went into the execs and told me it was this, the job was too small, and I said you're you're wrong. Actually, you're wrong, and here's why I think you're wrong. And they said, Fan, I think you're right. Like this is the right move, and go wow. for it.
0: I bet there's a lot of listeners out there who have, at some point, while working at a big company, had this realization of, oh, we need to disrupt ourselves, and I think I know how. And in most cases. There's no way to act on it. And and certainly they're not going to get executive support. But it is amazing here with the billion dollar bet, you having these whispers and, and realizing, you know, this this is, you know, this is something that not only should we kind of bet the company on, but I'm going to bet a lot of my career and reputation on. But you had. Mark Zuckerberg supporting the idea that the company should do that. So you were able to actually go and and get that done.
2: Yeah. This is a huge issue for companies. I mean, I being at Google for 10 years, I saw this all the time, mm. right? Mm-hmm. If you can put a dollar into one business, your main product, mm-hmm. and yeah. get $5 out, mm-hmm when you're developing a new product, you're putting a dollar and you're getting 70 cents out, or you're putting a dollar <laughs> and you're getting 120 cents out, right? And I'm not just talking about dollars, I'm talking about engineers, I'm yeah. talking about right headcount and the whole ecosystem that goes along with building a business. And so time and time and time again, when you look at this from a high level, you say, why the hell are we investing in this yeah. other business? Because mm. our core one is doing so well. So it's it me- makes it incredibly hard. Yeah. So the bar is so unrealistically unre- high for new businesses. So it really does take often a dramatic acquisition, frankly. A lot of times, like Google is a good example of this, they grow through acquisitions because yeah. it's too yeah. hard to get the early traction that you need to prove that this is a place you should continue to spend your resources. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So well, that's a good.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say. Speaking of uh, of building the business, David, yeah. you want to take us into uh, dollars um, in and dollars out. So yeah. How? I mean, at
1: this point, there's no business model. There's no revenue model. There are no ads in Instagram. Brands are in, on Instagram, but it's all organic. Right. Um, it's all brand managers at companies posting, you know, posts on on their own. How did you even start with Kevin to think about what to do here? I mean, because we're sitting here in 2019, it seems obvious that. That the model you chose was right, but it wasn't obvious at the time like uh, Even Facebook's first advertising model, you know famously was just display ads on the side of the web page And that was terrible. It was years until they figured out the newsfeed You know, how did you guys start to approach the problem?
2: Yeah, well the first question is do you have to make money? Right and that's Mm. the question that we Mm. debated with ourselves and with a bunch of people at the company is like Mm. Do you really need to make money? Um, I like making money, of course, <laughs> on AdWords at Google. I've been in that business for a long time. I know it. Kevin and I sort of came to the place where I think we knew that we wanted to make money because if you make money, you can write your rules. You mm-hmm. can write your own rules, right? It's easier to tra- It's easier to make mm. the case for headcount. It's mm-hmm. easier to have a voice within the company. And, of course, we were, at this point now, a very small company and a very large right. company um, or at least a medium-sized company that had a lot more people than we did. And it was shortly after I arrived, in a handful of months, that we hit the 100 million user mark. So at that point, um, we were sitting on top of a company that had the infrastructure. Um, and talent help us monetize yeah. relatively quickly compared mm-hmm. to how do we had how, how to do this on our own. We had the user base that we needed in order to actually make a viable business. Mm-hmm. And we knew that we wanted sort of power and control and the ability to write our own future moving forward. And so it really made sense that we were going to start with advertising. We also knew that. The model that was going to work on Amazon, on Amazon, on Instagram. Um, <laughs> Amazon that, also
1: has advertising. <laughs> it would also
0: be a foreshadowing of uh, Instagram's future business model. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it gave us opportunity to do something pretty different in the ad space, namely around um, using mobile to actually complete a purchase. Mm, and mm-hmm. the people were coming to Instagram with a different perspective. Products were showing up in a different way. And mm-hmm. it, it seemed to us even at that time, that giving users the ability to buy through Instagram ads could be really killer ad format down the road, but that mobile infrastructure, I mean, it's funny to talk about and, payment did not yeah. exist then, right? Mobile websites weren't good did, enough. Did Stripe even exist no. at this point? Apple Pay wow. certainly didn't. Yeah. Yeah, no. So um, we knew that we needed to give the industry some time to mature. And so actually starting with the ad formats that we did made a lot of sense as the very first step in a journey. And we knew that we were heading down that path mm. and that the beginning was just that it was the beginning. So, you know, sometimes, I mean, I would say at Google with AdWords, actually, we got relatively lucky that early on we sort of landed on the ad format that ended up being like the ad format (laughs) that's still there today. Maybe Um, the best
1: ad format of all time. (laughs) Pretty good
2: ad format. It's done well. (laughs) I mean, this was fun, right? This was really fun. We had, we had visual, we launched video another maybe six months after that. Um, so it was a very rich ecosystem for really the next generation of ad formats um, and marketplaces. So.
0: so Instagram as a product was known for being Spartan and beautiful and yes. focus on the content. Ads on Facebook at the time were not that, right? Uh, at, at least if you generalize it. How did you go about making sure that you didn't ruin something beautiful on Instagram by starting to introduce the Facebook's business model to it.
2: Yeah. So we made that the number one priority, Mm -hmm. actually. Um, We knew... And we knew, by the way, just looking at what happened with the terms of service, Mm -hmm. that (laughs) pissing off our user base was not the way to go. Mm -hmm. Um, And that we had something pretty precious and we were going to treat it that way. And we are in the advantageous position, as I mentioned earlier, of not having to make money, Um, meaning we Mm -hmm. didn't have to pay the bills. (laughs) So we could take our time and move slowly and be really thoughtful. Which is
0: Facebook's mantra. (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) Obviously not.
1: It was an
2: amazing luxury that we had and most companies don't have it. And so we spent a lot of time looking at um, what content was going up, how users felt about it, what brands were already sort of natively acting on the platform and how users were reacting to them and decided that we were going to place ads in the feed, which was also, as you can imagine, sort of a controversial moment because it's prime real estate. But it's also when you're in an ad business, you need distribution. And that's where distribution was going to happen. But we were going to do so in a way with brands that were already really elegantly playing on the platform and had good user um, interactions. And we were also going to do it in a very sort of one-off way meaning every single piece of content that came in was approved Mm. by us and Kevin and that and Kevin and and that went on for a long time so we were (laughs) like hand curating this stuff and paying it really close attention
1: wow yeah the first brands were well Michael Kors Kors, I think was the first ad on Instagram and then um you had Levi's, W Hotels, Macy's, Lexus, PayPal, General which I Electric was, really was in there too. Oh, interesting, and yeah. uh, and Ben and Jerry's. Yeah, which, I mean that's perfect. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually curious on, on on PayPal. If you remember, like how that's not an obvious like.
2: You uh, know, I have to tell you, I don't remember the PayPal one like really specifically. I wish I could yeah. speak to it. Um, I, I can't remember
1: exactly what it was, but it might have been for mobile payments. And anyway.
2: Um, we, again, we went, we went back and we said, who is really using this? So, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, um, Looking back at it, it seems like the most amazing opportunity for a marketer to participate in something this early. But remember what the time was. I mean, it was like, okay, we don't want to be the first advertisers because what if they hate it? Mm-hmm. What if there's backlash? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, I remember actually having a challenge with GE because they had gotten some. They had such a beautiful Instagram presence, but when they started advertising, they the the users didn't love it. Mm. It was in part because we. Were, it was one of the first ads, and it was like, wait a second, now you're right. copying. Your this feed is the place where I go and dump and all my
0: grievances.
1: There are comments on ads, right? Right, like, and there are comments I mean, on that ads, was exactly. New.
2: <laughs> and we are basic, basically treating them like organic con- content that was with, yep. with sponsored tag, right? So, um, and more distribution. So there, there really is some headwind. You have to find marketers who are willing to go down this, go down the road with you, and take some risk and believe in what you're doing well enough to sort of get over some bumps. And so we really looked at who was doing really well on Instagram already Mm -hmm. and who are the teams that were leaning into this and would be good partners for us along the road, Mm -hmm. along the way.
0: It's interesting thinking about uh, also in retrospect, I mean, the business model of, okay, we just bought the fastest growing sort of inventory pool available we have all these advertisers that are trying to push more and more ads to uh, more and more slots or available inventory. It makes so much sense to just enable that dashboard to also push to this new sort of slot pool that is Instagram.
2: So tempting, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Not going to do it.
0: (laughs) And I mean, that's effectively what it is today. There's zero. I mean, at at PSL all the time, we're buying ads and like you click another box. In fact, for Acquired, we've done some ads. You check another box and like, boom, the same thing goes on on Instagram and Facebook. And there's no real way of of sort of quality controlling one or the other. How did you think about like what features of the ad dashboard and in what way to actually let people who are using the ad dashboard tool put ads into Facebook beyond like, I'm sorry, into Instagram beyond actually hand curating every single one?
2: So that's a tricky question for this because I left in... The beginning or the very end of 2014 mm-hmm. so the actual dashboard integration happened after i left
1: okay. that it first wasn't until uh, self-serve at all didn't exist till 2015 no, it
2: I took think. a while yeah, that's a
0: great point
1: yeah right? it
2: took a while so we were really in the like hand curating um hand posting hand reporting right. phase and I, I think the other point that's worth making here is it's sort of what was happening internally and culturally at Facebook and Instagram mm. at that time. So as I mentioned, it was the first time we had acquired a company for the, for both the talent and the underlying technology. And the Facebook community didn't really, the group of people who worked there didn't really understand what that meant specifically. Let me just give you some examples. Yeah. Um, you know, besides the lawyer going and, and <laughs> sort of, you know, changing the terms of service, um, Teams generally just wanted to do exactly what they were doing for Facebook. The recruiting team wanted to Mm -hmm. do what they were doing for Facebook. The policy team wanted to apply Facebook's policies, right? Everything was just like, okay, let's just integrate them right now. And so really my first week or two on the job, Kevin and I had like locked ourselves in a room and we mapped out Instagram's mission, vision, and values. Specifically because we knew that it was important, that this thing was It was big already, but it was going to be much bigger. Um, That it was really important that we maintained our own identity Mm -hmm. and control over how the product moved forward. And that we were also um, making it really clear from the employee's perspective, like what is Instagram and what is Facebook and how do you play in these two different worlds, Right. right? We wanted people's help, but we couldn't let them smother it. That was the beginning of realizing what Instagram was inside of Facebook instead of Instagram becoming Facebook. Now, of Mm -hmm. course, as you read the news, there is actually real uh, momentum, it looks like, inside of Facebook to make Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp all sort of one thing. Yeah. But I think for the beginning.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's an alternative history where um, Instagram became Facebook mobile photos app, right? Right,
2: yeah. (laughs) Uh, No, it could have happened. Yeah. In fact, one of the first things I did is um, Facebook had maybe 6 or 12 months before bought mm-hmm. an app that uh, was a data compression app. So users all over the world were downloading this app on their phone mm-hmm. and it was lowering their phone mm-hmm. bill effectively and in exchange it was giving information about what those what users were doing on their mobile phones, right? So I actually we had access to this. I could go see okay, of all of the Facebook employees, how many are actually using Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> and it <laughs> turned out that the same percentage of uh, and I can't remember the exact percentages now, but basically the same percent of the United States that was using uh, Instagram was uh-huh. the same percent that Facebook of Facebook employees wow. that were actually using Instagram. The point here is that it was very low. It yeah. was like in the you know low teens or something uh, yeah, like yeah. that.
0: And this was after years. they'd hit the hundred million user mark. Uh, I mean, this
2: this is- was just before that. Okay. Yeah. So Instagram was had been acquired. <laughs> it had been the team had moved down, but still people were so focused on Facebook. Right. right? I mean. As you do. Right. And, uh, and so really you know, between the mission, vision, values, and then really like an on-campus marketing campaign where we started doing Insta walk tours around the campus and got up and started talking at all-hands meetings and thinking about our product launch separately and going to the board meeting and sort of just talking about what Instagram was and what made it special and how it was different. And really the ad strategy in part rolled out out of that, right? How Mm -hmm. do we create a product experience that feels really authentic to this platform and through that also make a stance about our ability and 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 requirement in some ways to build something that's unique for this platform and not just slap Facebook ads onto the user experience, which I think at that point would have been really rough.
0: Yeah, it's like philosophically, how do you make sure that the people who are going to be designing those experience for that platform actually use that platform? Yeah, yes. that's a great point.
1: Yeah. So I think that's actually a really great transition to a topic that I, I'm super curious about. Um, I bet a lot of listeners... Uh, certainly interact with this all the time, but have no idea what goes into. What what are the components of building an ads business? Um, you know that obviously you did at Instagram, but it, but you saw it at Google, you saw it at Facebook. You know, one of the only people, if not the only person in the world, who's done this four times. Like, what are the what are the pillars of of this business?
2: Yeah, well, it also is, it's changed so much in that period of time, right? I mean. When um, when Google started, I remember it actually really did not care about making money. Do you guys remember those days? It was um, like hire
0: smart people, have the fastest search results, and nothing else matters. Exactly,
2: pretty much. So so I joined Google at the very beginning of 2001 when AdWords was, you know, like 500 advertiser advertising beta <laughs> it was all you know based on what was it CPM ranked on the right side and had the luxury of growing at a time when nothing like it existed. I mean, you had Mm. Overture at the time that was doing some interesting stuff on the algorithmic side, but Google for the first time really married this incredible web presence, right? I mean, they just had traffic coming under their ears with um, a very intent-based user um, experience right people are telling you what they're looking for and so the opportunity to serve up content and they they really took advantage of that opportunity by saying this is not just brand marketers who can do this this is mm-hmm. anyone right mm-hmm. and um, they didn't get that initially they actually built AdWords originally as I mentioned as a CPM,
3: Product. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm.
2: everyone who showed up at the top right had to pay ten dollars. Everyone <laughs> underneath them had to pay eight dollars. Ten? No, it was at twelve, ten, and eight oh, set wow. per thousand views. And that was there so
0: no auction. The auction there was no up?
2: auction early on. There's wow. no auction, and I would say like a year, year and a half in the auction came about. So we added. um, we added in the component of actual click through rate. So how well were these things performing? And then we added an auction in. So it allowed um, businesses with wide variety of margins to come and participate all of a sudden. Cause when you have a set CPM, you're crowding out ninety percent. You're only right. letting, you know, a very specific set of advertisers bid. And so we didn't have anyone bidding for, you know, sheet paper music yeah. or mm-hmm. Persian rugs, right? We had a ton bidding for like mesothemia lawyer right. ads or whatever. So It really was, you know, sort of a stroke of genius and luck at the same time that those things came together. By the time fast forward to Instagram, the technology to do this obviously had sort of already existed, Mm -hmm. um, which was wonderful, but we had also moved as a... A marketplace to be so much more focused on effectiveness, Mm -hmm, right? I mean, AdWords mm -hmm. started that, right? You could put a dollar in and you knew what you're going to get out, but really 10, 12 years later that had taken over the world. And so Mm -hmm. they built a target.
0: Yeah. Facebook dropping, you know, conversion pixels or or telling advertisers, Hey, you should be putting these conversion pixels at the end of the pot of gold on your website. So we know when these people are actually buying the stuff, you can tell us how much it was for. We can help you tune that.
2: Exactly. So it's like really serious performance marketing. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, that existed. That was the expectation in the marketplace. But we were coming out at Instagram with a brand new platform and we didn't know how it was going to work. Right. <laughs> and Post we knew pretty photos. <laughs> they had to be pretty photos <laughs> and they had to be um, they had to speak to our user base in a pretty unique way. And so when you're doing something like that, you don't want to make promises. We knew that we were not building a product that was going to, at least in the short term, compete with Ad, with Facebook ad dollars, right? We weren't going to be that performance marketing vehicle. In fact, initially, we talked about it with marketers more as a brand play
3: because mm, there weren't
2: calls calls to action. It was it was beautiful content telling a story. Oh yeah,
0: could you could yeah. you tap on the ads the
1: first nope, time? No,
2: not not I not, are, our, not, not then. that there
1: weren't even nope. links in Instagram at all. Nope, at this there were point. no links. Yeah. Right. There That's were right. no
2: links, so they re- really had to fit into that. Again, with the picture of longer term, we wanted links. We wanted the ability to interact. We wanted the ability to purchase and drive purchase purchases, right? Because it's this beautiful ecosystem for discovery. Mm-hmm. But again, the infrastructure didn't exist then. The, the mobile infrastructure didn't exist then. So what we did was um, we very systematically went through all of the pieces of Facebook that we could either lean on or build our our own. And we decided systematically, okay, we're going to lean on Facebook for this. We're going to build our own this, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That I should say. So we had the Facebook data, Mm -hmm. right? We knew who our users were. And that was a huge gift because when you're going out with a new ad product to be able to say, actually, you can target exactly Mm -hmm. who you want to target was was a big win. But we also in the in the sort of the face of this is going to be feel a little bit more like brand advertising early on. This was not a world. This was not about micro targeting. This was Mm -hmm. about getting your audience in pretty broad swaths.
0: Targeting tends to be really important in direct response advertising and less important in brand advertising because you're going for the bigger, broader base. I guess. Yeah. Did you need all that targeting capability for those initial? We needed
2: basic targeting because our user base was 100 million users. Mm -hmm. And, You need really big budgets to target all 100 million users. And by the way, it's not going to be relevant for them. So you have to think about them. You can't be buying a
0: Super Bowl ad every day. No.
2: And nor would that necessarily play particularly well with what we were starting to do. Again, remember, the beginning was about little disruption, platform consistent, visual storytelling experience. Mm -hmm. And um, it was also our chance. It was our sandbox. It was our chance to play and and sort of try different things. So
1: So did you need... Maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but did you need a new ad sales team to go s- sell these ads and interface with these brands? I mean, that's not the core capability of what the Facebook ad sales team was doing at this time, right? Yeah,
2: so um, we decided to do a, a take a hybrid approach. We um, leaned on the sales teams really heavily because they had all these relationships that we mm-hmm. didn't have to go recreate. But we actually started a little ad sales team within our group, and we sort of repurposed people who were doing more business development work mm. and the and the such too go and have those conversations. So it, when we showed up, this was not a Facebook marketing ad sales mm-hmm. meeting. This was an Instagram mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, meeting. Cause you're um, probably
1: meeting with different people within the advertisers, right? Like mm, do these big brands have different versus brand. brand versus performance people? Um,
2: you know, probably in some cases, but ultimately when you're doing something this experimental and cutting edge, you're typically running up to the people at the top yeah, anyway. Yeah. And we tended to work with brands that were doing this in-house and weren't out like mm-hmm. outsourcing it to agencies. Mm-hmm. So it was just easier for us. It was lower friction for us. We didn't have to go through 10 layers of approval. So again, we were able, we were in such a great position. We could go to the advertisers we wanted to go to.
0: It's like the greatest startup of all time where you, you both <laughs> get to do things that don't scale and have a playground to do it manually, but can exactly. pick up, the phone and have any CEO say, sure, we'll commit X Exactly. million dollars to yeah.
2: that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And of course, when I did this again at Snapchat, uh now Snap, um, mm-hmm. we didn't have anyone to lean on. Right. We had to build it all of ourselves. We have to build the technology ourselves. Now mm-hmm. by that point, which was, you know, 2013, 20, I guess it was 2014, 2015. Um, we could have gone to a Google or, you know, one of the other engines and said, can you just f- send us your ads yeah. and here are the qualifications right. that they have and to then, meet?
1: And, and at Snap, you did a partnership with Viacom, right, for that sales? was sales?
2: Uh, okay, no, that's, it's a little conflating issues, ah. but I'll, I can explain that. But no, <laughs> we actually decided um, instead of going to a partner and just having them turn on their ad feed to us that – Advertising was going to be an important part of our DNA and our business moving forward. And when it's an important part, you don't want to outsource it. You want to own it. And so we actually went ahead and built the infrastructure in-house to serve the ads, to measure the ads. This is at Snap. This was at Snap. Snap yeah. Snapchat. So we launched the yeah Snapchat yeah. now Snap. Um, <laughs> we we built that infrastructure in-house. Um, we went and got all the advertisers by ourselves. We did all the measurements. I mean, again, if it's important, you've got to have it yeah. in in your. And your control, you want to measure it, you want to know it, you want to understand it. We did down the road when we launched Discover, Uh, which is the platform right where we pull in third-party content in sort of bite-sized snippet formats that you can sort of read really easily. We had ads, embedded ads within that. And so our partners who were actually producing the content to a format that they had agreed on with us were doing a bunch of the ad sales for that content, but not for the core Snapchat content.
1: Because a lot of that was Some of it was repurposed, but it was TV commercials, right? right, That were coming in some cases. Yeah, that was why. Hence the vacuum partnership. Anyway. Yeah. um, Cool.
0: Yeah, I think that about takes us to the end of the road on on the history and facts of uh, of the Instagram acquisition.
1: You know, the end, uh, as we said in the beginning, (laughs) as we always do, is um, you know eight to nine billion dollars. Well, a brief timeline. It was. 2015, as we mentioned, when self-serve ads launched, um, 2016 stories launched. There were no stories on Instagram yeah. before 2016. But you can I thank mean, Snapchat for, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Snapchat right. for that. Yeah, right. Speaking of Snap, <laughs> and, um, uh, famously, and, and it wasn't until 2017 that ads in stories launched. I mean, that was two years ago. Well,
0: that and there's like still, time ago. I mean, this is still, this is, we've talked about this on previous episodes, but stories is not as good of a medium for advertising as the feed is. And so uh, Facebook and, you know, everyone else with stories is going to have a reckoning as more and more attention shifts to stories with their, you know, their advertising performance. And I think that shows up in Facebook's numbers a little bit, and they've cited it a little bit as, as uh, you know, reasons that um, there might be a deceleration, but it's, it's kind of obvious in the user experience. When you're going through stories, you're just not grabbed in the same way that you're grabbed. It's so if you take a step back and think about what we're talking about here, I'm saying that when you are flicking vertically through something, ads are somehow more appealing of a format as when you are horizontally tapping through something. And yet... It is a dramatically different user experience yeah. where in a story you're like, ah, not, not now, not now. I'm, I'm in the now. I'm in the story. But when you're scrolling, you're used to studying something for longer and it yep. being something that you're willing to let interrupt your brain for a little bit.
2: Exactly. So it's really about trying to infuse ads in a story mm-hmm. versus in a feed. That's mm-hmm. the real difference. We actually at Snapchat when we launched um, the live stories, mm-hmm. we took a pretty different approach with advertising too, because of that actually, mm. and we decided to make it much more of a brand play, mm-hmm. um, because brands were typically they were already part of that social experience. Like if you're going to go to a concert or something, or mm-hmm. you're going to go to an event, there's usually brands around you anyway that are associated with that, and so our first step was let's pull them in and make them part of this online experience too, not just the in stadium experience or the, in, you know, in concert venue experience.
1: Right. Uh, So predicted Instagram to do 14 billion in revenue this year in 2019. When I believe it was shortly before we did our first episode, episode two Mm -hmm. on Instagram, Citigroup had just done a research report on Facebook and estimated the value of Instagram within Facebook at 35 billion at that point in time, which was a crazy number, right? I mean, we'll get to grading in a minute here, but, you know, by any measure, a business that big growing at 40, 50 percent a year. Uh, with a very high margin, you know, ad revenue business, probably going to get at least a 10x revenue multiple, um, which is very high, but like warranted. You look at like Squares trading at a 10x revenue multiple with worse so, margins. So you're uh, saying
0: the enterprise value of Facebook, I'm sorry, of Instagram is somewhere around 150 billion dollars. That's what I'm saying,
1: at least, right? You know, and Facebook's market cap is, I believe, about 400 billion today. Didn't look right uh, exactly, but which right is interestingly
0: that. right about 2x from the last time we we dove into this story at the end of
1: 2015. So. There you have it. For the moment, we're gonna pause our, our history of yeah. facts on Instagram. Something tells me we'll revisit this again in the future. Um, I,
0: I'm, I'm pulling forward a tech theme here, but it is interesting to take a step back and just let it dawn on you that you know Friendster and MySpace never, I mean, imagine if MySpace had bought Facebook and they said, okay, look, it's, it's, it's not about the MySpace, the platform succeeding, it's MySpace, the company succeeding. And Facebook did that when they bought Instagram. And so Facebook is becoming less relevant. Instagram became way more relevant. It was the thing the kids were on. Everyone's mm-hmm. parents got on Facebook. Snap started to steal some of that back, and then Instagram, you know, Facebook Instagram sort of wisely realized we're going to leverage what we still have, and that's the network, and we're just going to copy feature for feature in a way that blends really well into our product. And they managed to sort of like steal a lot of that back, and and Instagram remained sort of uh, or, or avoided that sort of low end disruption and the thing that i'm wondering now is sort of like have the parents come to instagram and have has instagram become uncool and is there something else that facebook's going to need to go by here shortly when the existing social networks are are sort of then then we the are hill? the parents now
2: <laughs> yeah as, as as the parent in the room <laughs> parents are on in, on instagram <laughs> First of all, I think we're seeing that the there's longevity to these things. I mean, mm-hmm. Facebook has been around in and of itself for a while, yeah. right? And it still is, even though it doesn't always feel like it's as much of our day-to-day as it used to be, it's still incredibly successful. Instagram has managed so far to stay really true to its initial character, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, um, while adding on some really nice bells and whistles that keeps it current and has really helped as you mentioned, capture sort of some of the wandering eyes off. So I don't know. I, I would still, I would bet money on Instagram continuing to do well. Although we'll see what happens when, you know, as Facebook is thinking about bringing all these products together, you know, that's a very delicate situation that they can't really afford to mess up. So.
0: Yep. Yeah. And it's, it's, it actually, we shouldn't call the history and facts done without uh, mentioning that uh, the founders are no longer at Facebook um, and, and left in, uh, um at the, just end, last of the year. end of 2018 yeah. Yeah. and in sort of disagreements about like, the, the future direction of the product so well um i'm i'm not saying it it's also like, been a long time too. yeah 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 i come down way in the camp can i just say it was ridiculous reading those news articles that were all like the founders are leaving this is this is crazy and it signals all these bad it's like i can't believe how long they were there i mean it really speaks <laughs> I know, to right? like <laughs> the, it's, it speaks to how right the acquisition actually went that they stayed this long it never yeah. happens Yeah,
2: Yeah. no, you're right. And I think that these things become institutionalized, too. I mean, I I think that people and culture are everything to a business. And by the time that, you know, um, Kevin and Mike left, like they had built an organization of people that they had handpicked and they had decided what the culture was going to be. And that existed within Facebook. Now, can they keep it going? We'll see. But it's, you know, it's so much larger than just the two of them now. Yeah, Yeah.
0: it's a great point.
1: Well, actually, this is a really good segue to revisiting acquisition category here. I believe I called this a technology acquisition uh, in episode two. Um, I think we were trying to disagree more. And and yeah, so
0: uh, Emily, we should we should talk here about like and and for folks who are new to the show, every time we we bucket into a category of people, technology, product, business line, asset or other and we've come up with like several different others over the years but basically um the the main distinction to, to draw there is between technology product and business line a business line is when you're buying something that's revenue generating and you're going to sort of leave it alone and it's going to uh, it's going to increase in value and you're going to um, YouTube or yeah 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 uh, a product is something that i would argue like Instagram for example where it was not its own business line but you were buying something that was sort of a, a fully baked a thing fully that baked people thing. were going to use that was its own full value yeah. chain not the technology
2: relying on is like others. you're
1: buying an ml server. Yeah. Oh, this is definitely product. Yeah, it (laughs) was definitely product. It was the early days. Yes, for sure, A product acquisition. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. We should and and yeah, that was probably because we were trying to disagree more at that point in the show. But Um, uh, I don't think there's many. There's no no, arguments about that. Um, So, what would have happened otherwise? A lot of times we talk about like what would have happened if this didn't get bought, and I, we waxed philosophically about that before. Anybody who wants to should go listen to episode two. The thing I'm curious about, and I want to pick pick Emily's brain on, is what if Twitter had successfully bought Instagram? What do you think the most likely outcome is of, of that if that had happened?
2: Oh my gosh, that's a really hard one. <laughs> I will tell you that um, with you know sort of knowing that the Twitter history uh, when Kevin and I went to present to the board, I don't know, maybe four or six months after I joined, I said to the board, we just bought the next Twitter. It's going to be bigger (laughs) than Twitter because it was so much smaller at the time, but I was trying to get across the point, which I wasn't sure they knew (laughs) that this was a really big deal and it had tremendous amount of traction. And the board was was
1: skeptical that you were overselling.
2: Maybe reality, you Um, were
1: underselling.
2: Maybe. I think that, listen, I think had, We'll start with, like, had Facebook not acquired Instagram, I don't know where Facebook would be today, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that Mark showed a level of ingenuity in identifying and moving quickly on the Instagram acquisition, and maybe he would have done it on the next one, I don't know, and been successful with that, I'm pretty sure that Instagram would have been very successful, it just would have taken longer, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, we leveraged a lot of what was at Facebook to make it grow this quickly, right? The expertise, the technology, the people, um, the go-to-market, it was all built in, which was wonderful. We intentionally maintained the product experience, and that has continued to do very, very well, despite, Mm -hmm. you know, and in addition to it being part of Facebook. Had Twitter bought it? I don't know. The, the management challenges there have have gone on for a really long time. Yeah. And, you know, you'd like to think that Instagram would have been able to carve out their own niche within Twitter and been able to avoid getting caught up in who sort knows. of the drama there. But who knows?
1: But, yeah, because that was – this was um, pre-Jack Dorsey coming back. Yes, as CEO, yeah. and uh, um, there yeah, was, yeah, was still there. That, that moment in time was uh, – would have been a, a hard – Entry point, I think, for any business into uh, into into Twitter as a company.
0: Let's say for for Dick Costello, prescient to try and close him for five hundred million. Yeah, I mean that's that could have been a nice uh, a nice pickup. Yeah,
2: yeah, um, but these, this we're living in a world. I mean, at that point, with thirteen or sixteen employees, no revenue, oh, user yeah, traction, it's yeah. all sort of funny. Yeah. It doesn't even matter, honestly. I mean, at that level, if you if you save or have to spend an extra five hundred million, and it sounds so bizarre, but <laughs> yeah. the the possibility is so tremendous that it really doesn't matter.
1: Yeah, it's funny. This is reminding me of um, this will be for another episode someday. But uh, I remember when I was at GSB in, in business school, uh, Biz Stone came to one of my classes and told the story of when Mark Zuckerberg tried to buy them for five hundred million. And I'm probably butchering the story, but. The legend has it that uh, it was Biz and Ev, and uh, they met with Mark. Then they got back in the car and they were driving back up to San Francisco, deciding whether to take it. And, and Ev said something like, Well, oh, if we're worth you know, 500 million, we're worth 5 billion or something. I think it was if we're worth a billion, we're worth 10 billion or something like that. And like, <laughs> it sounds so silly, but you're right. Like When you're talking about things at this scale and these opportunities, like Instagram, 500 million, a billion, 10 billion, whatever. Like, it's yeah. a steal
0: at any price. It is crazy, yeah, that uh, Twitter offered 500 million for Instagram and then Facebook bought WhatsApp for 40 times that. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, that
2: goes to the point of like, I think there's just maturing viewpoints on what these things are worth. But yeah. you have to remember that Ev had sold his last company, Blogger, to Google.
1: Yep. Right, so he right, had been right.
2: down this road, yep. he knew what integrations look right. like. Yep. Um, he knew he'd made money at that point. And founders' mindsets change when they have yeah. something in their pocket.
1: Yeah. That's another thing that's changed since those days. I mean, it used to be, um, I I feel like Instagram also ushered in um, the age of secondaries being okay for founders, right? Because if you haven't made any money and you have a billion dollar Deal on the table. Right. Um, How could that's you not really take hard it? to say <laughs> yeah. no to. But if you're able to take some money off the table along the way and like buy a house, you know, yep. um, it's easier to keep going and exactly. build the San Francisco, where you company. need a
0: billion-dollar acquisition to buy a house. <laughs> Basically. That's crazy. Uh, so, w- one other question in here for, for Emily: Knowing Facebook as intimately as you did at that point, do you think? without buying Instagram, that Facebook would have been able to succeed on mobile for the blue app, for their own product. And, and how crazy was the ship already turning into native, native, native mobile is super important by the time the Instagram acquisition happened?
2: At that point, they had realized it. Okay. Do you remember when Facebook came out with the Facebook phone?
0: Oh,
1: yes. Yes. I mean, there
2: was a lot of effort. There were a lot of efforts underway at that company, you know, at that point um, to make sure that it was a mobile first company. And I would say it took about a year, year and a half to really make that DNA change. But by the time Instagram was brought in, it was humming. It was fun, I have to say, um, for me personally, because I had only worked on at companies that had made that transition, right? I'd never worked at a sort of mobile native. Mm -hmm. I mean, we would (laughs) remember like... Sort of getting in these conversations about like how how do we continue to invest in Instagram web version and like why did it exist and how much functionality do we yeah. want to put in there and when did people use it and do we even need it. And <laughs> so the world has changed yeah. a lot.
1: Yeah. yeah. Although I will say Jenny, my wife, uses um, Instagram web quite a bit. Uh, and and we have web listeners have acquired.
0: I heard they're adding uh, DMs to Instagram web, wow. like big flash news. You yeah. know, this is twenty nineteen and this is what we're excited about. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but the but the main use case was really the ability to reference it in press, right? They yeah. needed the ability to pull oh, web yeah. images yeah. and yeah, web embedded. Of course, yeah. right? Embeds. So yeah, that was sort of the one of the initial key drivers. But yeah. I mean, we re- it was really a second class citizen for a very it sounds like it still is. Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh-huh. Um well, tech themes, I feel like per usual, we've covered a lot of them. One I want to throw out there that I think I hadn't thought about before this and, um, you know, talking to you, Emily, it, it seems to me, and feel free to disagree, but it seems to me like even though Instagram had certainly lots of advantages within Facebook and as you say, um, you know, got to where it would have gotten anyway, but faster, it's kind of amazing how much it still was a startup journey, right? Like you were having to do, you know, Instagram walks to to evangelize Instagram within Facebook. Like, um, it's still a fight for resources. It's not like an acquisition happens in a business on this scale and like everything's done. <laughs> the hard work's over. You know, It's still like building the company. Um,
2: it felt so much like a startup. A- and at the same time, we were part of a public company, mm-hmm. which then emphasized, at least to me, that we needed to double down on who we were and really make sure that we knew it and that we were defining it for the community um, because... Otherwise, it's just way too easy to get bowled over by, like, the massive organization that mm-hmm. you're a part of, right? And so, um, you know, our ability, we still had to recruit entrepreneurial people and engineers, right? We didn't want people who were sort of 9 to 5. We wanted, like, passionate people who loved this business. And we needed to, we needed to make sure that people understood that we were – different in our own way while still being part of it.
1: Did you guys or maybe even you specifically given your history did you look at YouTube within Google as like an example of this? I mean separate campuses, separate cultures, separate everything obviously shared on a lot of fronts but really enabled those businesses to grow separately. Yeah,
2: I think Google did a really nice job with the YouTube acquisition and that they resourced it, they informed it, but they let it fly on its own for a very long time. And and I've, you don't know if you remember, but like before Google pot YouTube, they had launched Google TV and yes, it had not right. worked. Oh, yeah. It that's had not right. worked. And no. so they kind of knew that they didn't know what they were doing, but that YouTube had figured it out. Mm-hmm. And so that was yeah. a very smart move. And I think they've done a nice job with many of the other nest is another one, right. Where they're just sort of keeping it separate. Um, in the case of, Facebook and Instagram, there's so much underlying overlap, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, the the sort of back-end infrastructure. I mean, even you think about, like, the content policing. Like, that takes top teams and teams of people all over the world. Um, And so it was... actively
0: employ, like, tens of thousands of people today. To
2: yes, absolutely. No, it's it's amazing um how much manual work still goes into into that. And so being being able to sort of plug into that and quickly again because the team was so small and so immature, but we had this user base that was large, the size of a much more mature company and we had to deliver right. to those standards. So it was incredibly, uh, it was amazing resource for us to be within Facebook where we had all of those people and had those systems where we did decide though, we decided like, we're going to have our own policies of what Mm -hmm. we're going to allow and what we're not going to allow. Um, and that this is more of an artistic platform and one of expression in a way that Facebook isn't. Um, so what does that mean for the review process that we Mm -hmm. have? So again, we went systematically one by one and decided where, where we were going to integrate and where were we going to have our own sort of perspective.
0: Right. Wow. Fascinating. It's funny. The one I've been thinking about is you were talking about at the time of acquisition or just thereafter, you and the Instagram team were kicking around ideas about Instagram as a transaction platform. And wouldn't it be great if in this really seamless experience, you could buy stuff right from this beautiful browsable photography. And that was five, six years ago now. And we're just starting to hear whispers now that that's starting to get productized. And it just reminds me so much of when you have a startup idea or you're you know hearing someone's startup idea and they're talking about this thing that they think they they eventually will be able to do. and it's it's it actually doesn't sound that hard. A lot of times these things are like, well, why don't you just do that feature? But there's just this morass of stuff that underlies it that has to you know be built foundationally before that's even possible. You know it's just a testament to um, the near-term work and that thing that you want to achieve eventually fitting under the same mission and vision so that you can put the mission and vision on the wall, use that as a uh, a knife for decision-making, does it fit in that or does it not? And. Without having to build that thing today, still be able to march toward the goal of building that thing eventually. And these things, you know, whether you have billions of dollars at your disposal within a big company or you know your scrappy startup, just takes a ton of time to it be able does. to realize these. And you have
2: to remember, this is all happening at a time where it was like, do we even need to monetize? And we decided mm-hmm. we needed to monetize, but mm-hmm. we also needed to grow the product, right? So we hadn't launched video, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's a lot we hadn't launched direct messaging, we hadn't launched stories. And so, of course, you know, the demise of many a business comes when there's lack of focus and you want to do everything. And one of the nice things about being small is that it really forces you to prioritize. And even mm-hmm. though we were within a larger company, we still felt like a startup. We still felt like a small team. And we knew we could not do everything at once. And so you start to think about horizons. Mm. And when does it make sense to do something? When does it make sense from a tech technological perspective, when is our community gonna be ready for it? Mm-hmm. How do you balance um, monetization, non-monetization together to create a story so you're continuing to drive uh, user value? Yeah. Um, they all go into the recipe mm-hmm. um, and decision-making mm-hmm. process.
1: That's funny. I have one more theme that uh, I didn't think of until just now, too, for usual. But um, you know, saying this, it, it strikes me, too, that there also was like a really, perhaps equally um, viable history where Facebook acquires Instagram and you and Kevin and Mike decide monetization is not that important. Right. And then the world looks very different today. Right. Like, so it just reminds me that like the end of the day, this is really all about the people, right? Like I assume if, if the three of you had been like, "Hmm, okay, like the company probably would have been okay with that. Right. Like it came down to you guys saying like, no, we are going to monetize. We are going to build a business here. Right.
2: Oh my gosh. I mean, the, the history is littered with these small decisions <laughs> that seem so small at the moment. I mean, just as a, as a parallel example, when I first joined the Facebook mobile team, I went and looked at all the contracts we had with carriers. Now we were not monetizing mobile at all, but in the contracts we had written in that they would get like roughly, I think on average, like 5% of the mobile revenue. <laughs> <laughs> what? I'm not kidding. Wow! And I read these, <laughs> and I was like, Okay, so we need to change this <laughs> to zero <laughs> uh, before wow. we launch ads. Let's go yeah. do it. Yeah. And we did. But, you know, such a minor thing that yeah. you could have sort of, you could very well have justified And By the way, it wasn't easy. These uh, these The op- mobile operators were not happy that we did this, but we also knew we had, I mean, it was really like, we could choose to give some of it back, but we didn't want to be contractually obligated to be in a rev share with anyone because mm-hmm. we hadn't done it before. There was mm-hmm. no real need to do it. Um, and so...
0: It wow. does go to show too, like the whoever negotiated those originally was probably thinking like, you know, we really need to have Facebook on mobile. No, it's never going to be a huge revenue driver for us. Don't care. I'll put it in. Exactly.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? Wow. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. And on WAP phones, they were right. <laughs> they were right.
0: <laughs> WAP. Oh, wow. <laughs> All
1: right. Well, grading. This is going to be short. Still an A+.
0: Still an A+. Mm-hmm. Uh, somehow there's not an A++, so we're, we're just going just gonna to keep it there. Emily, do you have any different opinion?
2: No, <laughs> home <laughs> run, home run in every yeah. regard. But
0: well, this is like a, this is like a game,
1: like a season-ending home run. Like you <laughs> yeah. hit this one, and yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, car belts.
0: Yeah. Um, so it's funny. We were talking about podcasting before uh, before the show, and we're talking about uh, about Joe Rogan, uh, who I believe has the most popular podcast. And yet, I, I had never really, other than the Elon Musk uh, blunt smoking episode, had never really uh, tuned in. and um, it's a really good
1: episode, by the way. It's, a,
0: it's actually, it's a phenomenal episode and it's a great interview with the guy. I need to listen to the Jack Dorsey interview as well. The episode I just listened to is Sam Harris guesting on Joe Rogan. And, uh, um, you know, Sam, uh, super thoughtful, moral philosopher, I think, but also he's and, 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 and. He's he's, he's lots of things. Uh, YouTube personality thoughtful person of the internet and author and uh their dialogue on they both on their shows interviewed jack dorsey they both are sort of kicking around uh direct monetization and and, and flipping the business model like we talked about in the last episode of podcasting they're both super thoughtful but serve very different audiences and it's just fascinating and i think they're, they're great friends and it's fascinating to hear them relate to each other um where they're these sort of mega influencers in wildly different worlds and i think it's a uh it's a fascinating listen for for anyone who's a, a fan of podcasts, uh, a fan of uh, of trying to understand the world of media a little bit, but then also in a, a new media in an influencer sense, but then also trying to understand, you know, they do like 20 minutes on what it's like to prepare for and interview Jack Dorsey. And that's sort of a fascinating sort of dive into their uh, their different psyches. So I highly recommend that episode. Oh, I've got to add it to my list. That's huh. awesome. Podcast. The new Instagram. <laughs> um, my carve out is... Uh,
1: <laughs> uh, a really really fun book which I'm not quite done reading yet but uh, uh, can't wait to finish uh, Boomtown by Sam Anderson history of Oklahoma uh, of Oklahoma City specifically man I did not know anything about the history of Oklahoma City so he he was a journalist was assigned to write about the thunder and the the basketball team and stealing the thunder from Seattle but realized that there's a much bigger story about the history of Oklahoma City which sounds like why would you write a book about that but it's crazy. It uh, uh, is very worth, re- I can't even describe it other than like, I cannot believe that even in the late 1800s, like basically what happened was, you, know, you read about this in elementary school in history, like the U.S. government, Oklahoma was a unassigned territory, former native lands, and they decided that one day at noon on April 22nd, I think like 1889, they were just going to, anybody who wanted land could come in and claim 160 <laughs> acres of land that's it there was no so like at noon on that day was you know the the boom and oklahoma happened overnight and oklahoma city happened overnight. like so people like lined like up like outside people cheated the they were the sooners that's why they're the sooners they cheated and oh. came across the border earlier and like who's gonna tell them no it was <laughs> chaos uh and uh in many ways oklahoma and oklahoma city have been the same ever since so that's uh, wild. really really fun uh, kind of hard to believe this happened in america but um
0: anyway it's like domain names, but in real life. Yeah. <laughs> <It's really laughs> <like domain laughs> names. Uh. Awesome. Well, listeners, that is that is all we've got today, uh, Emily. Where can our listeners find you on the internet, if uh, if that is something that that you'd be interested in uh, in sharing?
2: Oh, so ironically, I'm not sure I can really be found. <laughs> I feel like my life in the um, <laughs> my life in social media uh, is so much on like the operations and making it happen, and so less on the sharing <laughs> side. <laughs> I don't tweet. I read. Um, I, I look at Instagram. I actually don't even post that much. And same with Facebook. So I'm much more of a consumer. Um, but that has to do with so much of my like preference for being sort of a quiet private person so. yeah
0: all right well awesome right. well you can
2: look for me at the halls of the airport <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> well listeners um, if you do want to hear uh, a little bit of a, a deeper dive into uh, some of the things that Emily thinks about today with uh, in investing at anthos and um, a lot of the other things that she had talked about throughout her career uh, at Google then tune in. And uh, we will be uh, continuing the discussion in the limited partner show. So you can click the link in the show notes to go to uh, kimberlite.fm slash acquired. Or if you are already a member, just hit the back button in your podcast client and uh, and go to the, uh, the LP show feed. So thanks to Perkins Cooey for being an awesome sponsor as usual. And we will see you next time. See you next time.